Father, we pray now that you would give us great wisdom, help us to listen, help us to think, help us to listen most of all to you and what you're saying in your word about us and what it means to live in your world and in particular around this area of sex and sexuality. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in many ways, I guess this is a series that in one sense I don't want to preach uh, because I'm British. And uh, talking about sex and sexuality is not something that I do particularly easily. Um, I'd much rather stick to less awkward topics and passages of the Bible. But I think, here's the thing, I, I may think that being British means we don't talk about these things, but actually, increasingly, actually, I don't think that's true anymore, because the world around us, British or not, is talking about these things an awful lot. Um, and, and increasingly in the sort of mainstream media all the time in different ways, uh, we are talking about sex and, and, and sexuality. And it, and it can feel sometimes like Christians are on the back foot. And everyone thinks Christians talk about this all the time. But actually, in one sense, um, we don't actually address maybe the, the things that others are talking about. But here's another thing together with all of that, it turns out actually the Bible has quite a lot to say about sex and marriage and how human beings relate to each other. And so not talking about these things is also not being faithful to what God in his wisdom has wanted human beings to know when he gave us the Bible so that we might know him. Now, as I said, historically, I think the church has not been great at talking about these things, although, to be fair, our culture, too, has not been great at talking about these things. Nobody has been great at talking about these things. Um, but um, I was a teenager in the 1990s, which sounds like an awfully long time ago, and it, it was. Um, but it was all, you know, the 1990s, it was, it was all Britpop and Oasis and Blur, and it, I was definitely Oasis rather than blur and uh, would not be seen dead anywhere near take that or the spice girls they were the other kind of side of the the culture uh, center parting haircuts and all that kind of things what i wanted not anymore obviously but in the 1990s was when i became a christian and if you rewind to a 1990s christian youth group the questions we were asking then as kind of teenagers trying to work out, you know, these kind of questions. The questions we were asking then were fairly specific and narrow. So we wanted to know, tell me the rules about who I can sleep with. And the answer we were given was, well, sex is for marriage. Uh, and in those days, the 1990s, it was taken for granted. Marriage means between a man and a woman. Um, then... Okay, the next question was, how far can I go with my girlfriend or boyfriend? And then after that, can I go out with a non-Christian? Those were the, the, the sorts of questions. That was pretty much it. it was like, those are the three main questions we asked, and then we got given various different answers to those questions. But in, in, in 2022, the world has changed significantly. And now sex isn't just something you kind of whisper about with your friends. In many ways, it is front and centre to, to lots that we think and talk about. And for many, it is seen as the key to human flourishing. 
And it, it, I think now the only boundary that matters, as far as many people is con are concerned, is consent. And I think, you can correct me, the guys who are at school, if, if, if I'm wrong, but I think basically that is the sort of main thing which, that people are taught these days. It's all about consent. So whatever two or more consenting adults want to do is up to them. And to deny them that or tell them that it's in some way wrong is not just strange and old-fashioned, but actually people would want to say now, well, that's harmful and even immoral to say that kind of thing, to, to, to say that anything that any two consenting or more consenting adults want to do is, is wrong. It's up to them. Leave it to them. That's it. End of discussion. And so for Christians who want to take what the Bible says seriously, if we're going to be able to understand and speak into these questions for ourselves and for others, we need to begin a lot further back than we perhaps used to. Not just what are the rules, what are the boundaries, what does God say, but more fundamentally, what is sex actually for? If we believe, a God, we believe, we believe in God who has made us, He's designed us, he's designed human beings in a particular way. Well, what, is, what place does sex have within that? See, the world says it's, for just, well, it's just for human flourishing, to have a nice time, to have a nice life, to have as much of it as you can safely and legally. But what does God say sex is for? And again, there is a traditional... A Christian answer to that question, what is sex for? So the, 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 the tr traditional Christian answer to that question goes like this. It lists three things. So first, sex is to form and strengthen the bond between two people who are married to each other. It's for marital union. So Genesis chapter 2, 24 and 25. Um, you can look that up another time, but um, that is... Um, to, to, sex is to form and strengthen the bond between two people. Sex is for procreation, for having children. So Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And sex is about sexual pleasure. And actually, do you know, there's, there's a whole book in the Bible about that, isn't there? Song of Songs. It's about sexual pleasure. Okay, so it's to, it's to strengthen marriage. It's for having children. It's for sexual pleasure. That has been the... the the traditional Christian answer. And I think that's all true and helpful as far as it goes. But the problem is, if that is all that Christians have to say about sex, well, the problem is that, for a start, not all Christians enjoy all three of those things. So even if we just start with people who are married to each other, if you start there, not all married people are able to have children. Not all married people are even able to enjoy sex for all kinds of emotional or physical reasons. And then even more fundamentally than that, if we take a step back from that, well, lots of people aren't married. And for some, that that's something that, that they're comfortable with. But for others, they might, just, might describe themselves as, in one sense, involuntarily single. And then there'll be some people who would say, well, actually, I'm gay or I identify with, with a, a, sex, a sexuality that I think the Bible doesn't really talk about in, in some way. And they would say, well, what does Christianity have to say to that and to me in that situation? Well, our culture says, well, who cares? 
You know, sex is for everyone. But if those three things are all that Christians can say, well, at that point, if you're not having sex because you're not married or you're experiencing problems in sex for some reason, then all that Christians can do at the end of the day is shrug our shoulders and say, well, sorry that you're missing out. We'll pray for you. And that's it. That's what it feels like. And it's no surprise that this can then be a source of great pain and frustration for many single or married, not for all in either category, but, but it can be. So we need to take an even, a step even further back. And we need to ask not just what is sex for, which is fine if you're having sex, as it were, but we need to ask what is sexuality itself for? Because again, God has designed us. And if he is saying, and we're going, to look, we're going to look in more detail next week at what the Bible says about marriage specifically and about the Bible's teaching on how marriage is between a man and a woman and that he's designed sex for marriage. And I know, again, in, in, the, in this world today, that will raise all kinds of questions about how can God say that and what can that mean? That, that is going to be the main thing we're going to talk about next time. Um, but for now, we need to ask ourselves, first of all, what, why has God made human beings to experience sexual attraction to one another, even when, for example, they're not married to each other? What's the point of that? Why are human beings like this? Okay, so that is what we're thinking about. What is, what is sexuality itself for? So we need to be clear what we mean by sexuality. Sexuality as a concept is a recent thing. Um, there's no recorded use of the word before the late 19th century. People didn't talk about sexuality before then. But it's about the capacity that human beings have to experience and to express sexual feelings. Now, of course, capacity means the, you know, the ability, but it's not the same as activity. It's not the same as doing. And that's why this is a question we need to ask, because... Pretty much, pretty much every human being has some kind of sexuality, although the, the extent to which they acknowledge that or are aware of that may be different. And, and more than that, what is also ever more clear is that every human being experiences sexuality differently. So, you know, you might get two people who say they're straight or two people who say they are gay or same-sex attracted or whatever it might be. But actually, when you talk to them, it finds... They are attracted to very different types of people, for example. They experience their sexuality differently. And those different experiences and expressions are reflected in the increasing number of labels that our culture uses. You know, the sort of LGBTQIA+, um, all that kind of thing, you know, which according to Wikipedia is kind of almost deliberately constantly evolving. So you're never quite sure if you're using the right acronyms and so on. But the, the, kind of behind that is the point that we're all different. And using you know, as, as many different letters as possible is a kind of way of saying, look, look nobody's the same. And, and, and more than that, our culture also knows that our sexualities are both damaged and damaging. So um, we've had, as we know, in the last few years, the Me Too movement has reminded us of the pain and harm, both great and small, that individuals have experienced. 
especially women. And we know also increasingly, I think, in our culture of the harm that is done to ourselves and others through the viewing of pornography. And the way also that sex can be used for power games in relationships. And the way that both men and women can use sexual attraction to manipulate others in, in different ways. Our sexualities are both in different ways damaged and can be damaging as well. And so when we talk about sexuality, we're talking about a word that the Bible doesn't directly use because no one used it till just over 100 years ago. But as we think about all those things that we mean when we use the word sexuality today, we are talking about things that the Bible is concerned about. Because all those things are to do with who we are, who God made us to be, how he designed us. That he's created us in, in his image and yet we are different from each other. That we are people who've turned our backs on the God who made us, who've sinned against him. So it's no surprise that the way we interact with one another as human beings sometimes is hurtful to one another. And so the Bible has plenty to say about these things. So, so, so our, that is our question. What is our sexuality for? And why has God apparently made almost all human beings to have a capacity for sexual attraction and sexual feelings to a greater or lesser extent, expressed in many different ways? Why has he made us like that? And then, if we take what, what we believe the Bible says about those things, why has he then apparently denied some people, you know, who are not married, for example, the opportunity to express that sexuality fully. Why would that be? What's going on? Well, before we close, there are two things to, to pick out. And you, 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 hopefully you can see this on the back of the um, handout as well, the, the, these headings. Two things to see from the Bible. So first of all, sexuality points to the intensity of God's love and the pain of our sin. Sexuality points to the intensity of God's love and the pain of our sin. I'm going to read now from the book of Ezekiel. It might be a slightly strange place to look, but you'll see why. Listen out, as I read these verses, I'm going to read through them quite quickly, but listen out as um, for, for both the kind of intensity and passion and then also pain in the language that God uses in these verses, as he talks about his relationship with his people, and he uses a kind of image of a relationship and uh, a, a kind of woman, a, a relationship with a woman, and you'll hear the, the kind of pain that is caused. So Ezekiel chapter 16, let me just read this to you and listen to this. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, and yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. 
I bathed you with water and washed you, washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewellery. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favours on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him, and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewellery I gave you, the jewellery made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. So can you hear what is going on there? The description of God's relationship with his people, described in terms of this relationship with a woman that he's loved and lavished everything upon and given everything, and then she has turned his uh, back on him and that's God's people turning their back on him as God. And she has acted as a prostitute, he, he, he talks about. It's pretty shocking language in, in many ways. But we get the same in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. And, and in a more positive way, we get the same in Song of Songs, which are passages we, we don't often read. But when God wants to illustrate the intensity of his love for his people... He uses the imagery of sexual attraction. And he uses the flip side of sexual attraction, which is sexual rejection and unfaithfulness, to illustrate what his people's rejection of him is like. So then why does he do that? Well, it's because Christianity is not about a list of dry truths to be believed. It's about a relationship with the God who made us, an intimate relationship there is both passion in his love for his people and there's also pain in the way that we reject him so do you see the point any human being has the capacity to feel those things which are being described here even when they are in one sense unrequited or unmet here and now they point us beyond ourselves and our merely human relationships to the relationship that matters most the one we were created for when Jesus talks about eternal life in John's Gospel, he says eternal life is simply knowing God. And so the longing and the yearning and the desire that is associated with sexual attraction and the desire for intimacy is a pointer to the love that God has for us. And actually, that is something that any of us, married or single, whatever label we would give to our sexuality, is something any of us can experience when we put our trust in Jesus. Okay, so that's the first thing to say. Sexuality, as the Bible talks about it, points to the intensity of God's love and the pain of our sin. Then, secondly, sexuality points forward to the wedding 
banquet to come. Sexuality points forward to the wedding banquet to come. We heard that in the readings from Revelation. So the wedding of the Lamb has come, we heard in Revelation 19. The wedding of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. And then chapter 21. I had the privilege of speaking on this at the real wedding just the other day for David and Laura, who were sitting right there. And uh, we, we, we talked about how even that wedding, and it was a great wedding, fantastic day, but even that wedding, that day was just a dress rehearsal. Now, they are definitely married. I promise you that. And even though I dropped the ring and all kinds of things happened. But the point is, whatever kind of sexual experience we have in this life, whether we're married or single or divorced or bereaved, or victims of some kind of abuse, whether we're frustrated or disappointed or struggling with our sexuality in some way, or whether we're happily married or happily single. Whatever that status is, that is not our final destination. This is not the happy ever after right now even marriage we say this in the marriage service we say it's till death us do part now they say sex sells don't they have you ever noticed how if there's going to be any kind of sex scene in a film they'll often put it in the trailer that you see in the cinema it somehow makes its way into that because they know don't they they know that if people see that they'll kind of make them want to come and see the film now i wouldn't say that that's entirely healthy but there is a sense in which sex and sexuality function simply as a trailer for what is coming in the new heaven and the new earth so can you see that in these verses chapter 21 verse 3 page 1249 verse 3 in that day there will be a perfect relationship with God can you see that in, in verse 3 Look, uh, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He's kind of saying the same thing over and over again because he's so excited to say God and his people will finally be together as God's people were created. And verse 4, perfect relationship, verse 4, then a perfect future. No more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. You know, our culture wants to say that sex is the way to ultimate fulfilment and satisfaction, but actually it doesn't like to admit that the flip side of that is that in different ways, sex can also be the source of pain and frustration and hurt for many. And that's the kind of pain and frustration and hurt that will not be there in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, as I said, next time we're going to go deeper into the question of why God designed sex specifically for marriage between a man and a woman. You know, why does it matter who sleeps with whom? And so on. But for now, what we need to see is this. When our culture tells us that sex is to be equated with ultimate human flourishing, it, it's telling us a lie. And, and Christians can fall for this just as much as non-Christians. 
Much of this series that we're doing over the next four weeks is based on an excellent book called Purposeful Sexuality by Ed Shaw. And uh, in, in future weeks, towards the end of the series, we'll have some copies of that, which you'll, you'll be able to um, buy, uh, take away if you'd like. And uh, Ed, who, Ed Shaw, who wrote this little book, he, he talks about how at one point he was in discussion with a Christian university student about Jesus coming back. Okay, one day Jesus is going to return, that's what Christians believe, and he was talking to this student about that, and the student basically said, yes, you know, I'm longing for Jesus to come back, but if I'm honest, I'd really prefer for that to happen after I've got married, because I don't want to miss out on having sex. Now, you know, I, you can sort of see, where, what, 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 imagine what, what he might have been going through his mind, but that is entirely missing the point, you see, of what... Christian hope is about because sexual desire and passion is pointing us forwards to an even greater intimacy to come with the God who made us. An intimacy that will mean nobody's looking back and regretting what they missed out on here and now. So when you go and see a, a, you know, an amazing film in the cinema and you, and you just think, oh, that was, a, that was a fantastic film. I'm really glad I saw that. Do you ever regret not having seen the trailer? Oh, I'm really gutted I didn't get to see the trailer because the film was so amazing. Well, no, you, that, that, that's not how it works, is it? You've seen the film. It'd be crazy to say that. Much more disappointing, though, would be to watch the, the trailer as if it's the film itself. I'm just going to settle for seeing the trailer. That's all I want, to see the trailer. And, and then to miss out on what the trailer is actually pointing to. And so to indulge in everything the world now tells us we must experience at the expense of being part of a far greater experience in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus put it like this, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? So this perspective that we've seen this evening is important for, for those who fear they're missing out because of their Christian faith and their commitment to wait for marriage, even if marriage never comes or even if marriage is impossible for whatever reason. It's important to see, no, we're not missing out. This is the trailer for the, the, the greater experience to come. This perspective, though, is also vital for those for whom sex here and now it causes pain in some way, physical or emotional, for those who are divorced or bereaved. And it's vital for those who are enjoying sex within marriage because it says this is just a foretaste, a glimpse of the joy to come which is available for anybody who trusts in Jesus. See, in the world around us, there are too many stories of people who regret falling for the ideology that sex here and now is the be-all and end-all of life those who regret losing their virginity too early, those who suffer mental ill health because they haven't lost their virginity, those who think life without sex isn't worth living, those who are destroying their lives or the lives of others so they can enjoy sex right now. See, sex and sexuality are designed by God to point beyond this world to him and to eternity. And if that's the case... It's absolutely no surprise that sex and sexuality are also a significant battleground 
in our world and in our lives if we're trusting in Jesus. See, when we struggle with temptation, when we're ashamed of past or present failure, that shouldn't surprise us because the devil's greatest desire is to distract us from the God who made us and the God who loves us, the God who sent Jesus to die for us as sinners, who sees us in our sin with all the things that we've done. And he says, no, I love you and I've sent my son to die for you. So that we can be washed and sanctified and cleansed and forgiven. Whoever we are, whatever we've done, we can enjoy that perfect relationship with him when we come and trust in him. These verses, Revelation 21, and indeed the whole message of the Bible is saying to us, the best is yet to come. Jesus is coming back. Keep looking to him and see how everything God has designed is pointing forwards to that day. If you'd like to be coming back to your seats now, we'll start a Q&A now. And uh, we've already got uh, six questions up there. <laughs> Thanks very much for that. So, I mean, trying to answer these questions fairly briefly, I'm very happy to talk further, you know, at other times. But um, so that when we say the fall, the fall happens in chapter 3 in Genesis. So um, the question then is what happens before the fall? And actually, when does God create marriage? Well, he creates that before the fall. That happens in chapter 2. So um, the... The fall is, um, is definitely after God has made it clear that um, Adam and Eve are brought together in marriage uh, to become one flesh. That's the end of chapter 2. So what then is the, what, what, what's the implications of that? The fall, though, means that all relationships are damaged and spoilt in different ways. So there's a lot more to say that, and really we need to come back to this next week, particularly around kind of um, homosexuality and, uh, and that kind of thing. But the, the, the headline is, all sexuality is affected by the full heterosexuality, everything. So that there isn't a... Um, uh, it's not that that's where um, the wrong type of sexuality got introduced and if everybody was heterosexual then everything would be fine. That's not the point. The point is all people are sinners and sin affects everything in different ways. Do you want to add anything to that? Um, I guess what might be behind that as a question as well is, um, you know, if the fall hadn't happened, would, might singleness still have been a feature? I mean, I suppose one would say, well, it, it, it would be a feature in that actually And I, I mean, I think the, the, the other thing to say is, 
when we look when we look to what perfect humanity looks like we look to jesus um, who was single so i think it would be very difficult to try and argue that the only um kind of real way to be fulfilled as a human being is to be married when the the one man who we look to as god on earth didn't get married um, and you know did not experience sex in in this world in that, in that way so I, you know, I, I think in, in that way, some of these questions, you know, you can't quite, we don't know in, in one sense, what, but, but we do, what, what we do know is um, it cannot be right that marriage is the only way to be human, even if God has then put boundaries on where the right place for sex is and all of that. Um, that look at Jesus and you start to think, well, what, what is really being human actually about? We'll deal with this one because actually I think it's it's very quick it's a very quick answer in one sense. Why does the Bible what does the Bible say about being transgender? <laughs> quick answer in the way that we're going to answer it tonight. Yeah, so as in, it's a huge question. Um, I mean, really, actually, questions around gender and, and transgender are big in our, you know, obviously, big things we're thinking about. We're, we're really thinking about sexuality, particularly in this series. Um, if you go on the website and you look um, from uh, this, at the sermons, you'll find there was a sermon called Male and Female in Creation, from maybe about 18 months ago. I can't quite remember when it was. But we looked at this topic specifically there, um, and that's what I'd recommend. If you didn't hear that sermon, go and listen to that. Um, but very happy to talk more about uh, gender-related yeah, questions. and also there was the presentation by Karen Saul. That's, uh, yes, yes, yes so indeed there was, yes. That was, that was back in uh, September last year, I think. Um, so again, indeed. she dealt Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. So again, I don't know whether this is this is one that, that you want to um, deal with more specifically next week. What is the purpose of homosexuality from a Christian perspective? How should we treat homosexuals? Can they be accepted in the church family? So I mean, we will we we will really address this next week. I think that's the best thing to say. But um, everybody's welcome is, is the place to start but what, what do we mean by that is the next question and so we have to then there is a lot more to say on that but let's talk about that in, in greater detail next week brilliant, okay um, okay, here's, here's a, a great one that would be good to answer now uh, what practical changes within the church setting should be made to avoid making an idol of marriage and or sex amongst Christians? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, a question that others are probably better at answering than, than me, I, I, I guess. But um, we're, it's absolutely right to say, let's not make this an idol. So, if, you know, if the starting point is Jesus wasn't married... 
if Christians go around implying that the only thing that matters is if you're married or not, that's not very helpful. So let's not do that. <laughs> but I guess, you know, people will have different experiences of how the messages, messages like that are not just sort of said from the front. They are unspoken often and, and, and received in different ways that you're not that some people, other people may not be conscious of. And so the, the, the way to deal with these things is to talk about it. So to hear from each other about our own experiences of what it's like to be married or single in the church family and um, ways in which people might feel excluded from things. So, you know, married, you know, it starts with married people not just hanging out with married people and, and single people not just hanging out with single people. It, it, it's figuring out ways to, to include each other in each other's lives. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's absolutely right. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would very strongly advocate that, that actually it, it's the mixing of the whole church family together that, that's, that's really important. Um, and also, I think, portraying in our teaching, you know, that, that we don't just teach on marriage and sexuality, but we also treat, uh, um, speak about singleness mm. positively as well as, as an alternative, you know, as a, a perfectly godly, different path for many Christians. And again, I mean, as I alluded to earlier, actually singleness will be a path that all of us walk at various different in our lives, and even for those who are married, the likelihood is that they will um, they will possibly walk that path again at some point in the future. So we do need to speak, I think, positively about about singleness as, as well, and not as a kind of second best, but as an equal but different path that God may call upon us to walk. Yeah. And a good gift within yeah. that. Yeah. And also, I think just one other thing, you know, it, it's it's important to say that just as it, you know, that the, the, both marriage and singleness, there can be seasons of blessing and where it is seen as a good gift, but also for both of them, seasons when it doesn't feel like that and when it is a struggle. And so to portray one as the easy one or the difficult one is not helpful. Yeah. But that's a kind of opening a whole new subject. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's really helpful. Really helpful. Yeah, the gra you know, there's that whole thing of the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, kind of thing. But uh, yeah, carry on. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, moving on to the next question. Um, okay. Here's here's a good one. Um, again, this this is probably going to be one that we are going to tackle uh, next week, or when we look more specifically at the subject yeah. of. I mean, yeah, I, I doubt we will look at these verses in detail next week, but um, we did look at them in our series on Romans um, a while ago, so, so within the last 18 months. Um, and th so, again, that would be the best place to go and, and look at uh, th th those verses in detail. But, I mean, in, you know, briefly... Um, it says, because of this, um, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
um, is talking about um, same-sex attraction, same-sex relationships as a kind of symptom of sin. But one of the things we talked about when, when, when I preached on this before was the way in which the reason that Paul seems to, to single this out at this point in Romans chapter 1 is that um, th there is a sense in which sin itself is about turning in on ourselves and that is what sin is. It's turning away from the God who made us and turning in on ourselves to kind of love self. And it seems that he then goes for a particular thing about sexuality that reflects that, which is the kind of um, homosexuality is, is um, turning in on oneself, as it were, on one's own uh, sex, one's own gender in, in that way. And so one is a picture of the other. Now, I haven't explained that brilliantly well and in a very condensed way, but we did look at that in, in more detail there. Um, I think beyond that, though, the, the thing that we also emphasise at that point is we're all sinners and everybody's sexuality is affected by sin. Um, so again, it's not picking out certain types of people and saying you're sinners while the rest of us aren't saying everybody's a sinner and as we'll, we'll come to next week if God has created sex within marriage well why is that what's that about but also that means there's all kinds of other sexual sin that all people of whatever sexuality label that we might give ourselves or the world might give us what, what whoever we are we're affected by sexual sin and, and again the, these verses are about that as well um, so it, it's, it's giving thing, putting things in proportion and saying um, this is sin but it's not the only sin by any means because we're all sinners. So let's not go around just pointing out other people's sin. Let's look at ourselves and our own hearts and see how, the, see how we, ha we have personally been affected. That's the place to, to start. Yeah, I mean, I think because it is, a, you know, there's a sense in which sexuality is about kind of who we are, and it's about us getting, you know, the, the bottom line is, do we get to say who we are and to define ourselves, which is very much what the world around us says. I mean, it, you know, it literally says, you know, you get to be who you say you are, and and the Bible says, no, that literally is what sin is, to, say, to get to label yourself and say who you are, versus listening to God and saying, the God who made me gets to say who I am. And you know, that is the fundamental question. Okay, and that goes way beyond sexuality. It goes into every part of our lives. The question is, is God the boss or am I the boss? And I think it's because... It's such a fundamental way where you see that kind of tension between am I in charge or is God in charge that it becomes such a sort of battleground um, in our lives. Do you got any further thoughts on that? I, I suppose um, a couple of possibilities on that, um, which may be overlapping, is you know people searching for intimacy, mm -hmm. you know, when they're actually their relationship with God is fractured, and where where their relationship. 
actually, again, having lost, lost contact with God, we, we just look for the pleasure, fulfillment, satisfaction, wherever we think we're going to find it. And mm. sex is, you know, as I'm sure we'll be talking about next week, you know, in a great way, in one, in sort of one sense, you know, yeah. in a great way to find yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. We should probably wrap up pretty yeah. quickly. Okay. Um, we are just down to two questions. Um, how is singleness equally as good if we are deprived the experience of the trailer of heaven? So I think, I think what I was saying was when you've seen the great film, you don't worry about whether you've seen the trailer. Okay? And I think the second thing to say is we'll all be single in heaven. <laughs> so or it's, it, oh, we'll be married. We'll, well, we'll all be married, but we won't be, what we won't be is married to each other or married to the partners that we had on earth. Yeah. Um, so, yes, exactly. We will be married to Jesus in that sense, in, in the sense that the, the, the Revelation 21 talks about. Um, there'll be that kind of marriage between God and his people. But, um, the, yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah. That wasn't me, by the way. No, I did stress. I did stress in the previous video. So, uh, but if it had been, I'd have been glad if you had picked me up on that. Um, yeah. yeah, so go on. Yeah, yeah. Should we go on to the last one? Yeah. Um, I think it's just a little bit, yeah, on the last one. It's, you know, I think. Yeah, you could answer this one. Yeah. Well, is it, is it saying if we say that marriage is a picture of God's love, in what way is singleness a picture of God's love? Okay. Um, Which, again, yeah. Again, I think I would point back to the fact that actually, you know, for the, I think there are these pictures in, in Scripture of, of God being the husband and, a, and of us being, being the bride. So actually, I think, you know, we, we all as human beings long for intimacy. And I think the other thing to say is faithfulness. If, if marriage, if, ma if the faithfulness within marriage 
models God's faithfulness to his people, there is another sense in which the faithfulness of single people also testifies to God's goodness. We're all, we're all called to be faithful in the situation that we're in, whether married or single or whatever, to be faithful to God, to the way that he's called us to live in our lives. And so in different ways, we will model faithfulness that God has been to his yeah, people. Yeah, I guess for, as single people, we could, you know, we, we can say, actually... God's love is sufficient. Hmm. You know, his love for me is, is sufficient as a single person. That, that actually, yes, marriage is a good gift of God, but ultimately it is not something that I need because God's love is sufficient. So actually I think that, that, that is a very powerful thing uh, you know, to, be able to, to be able to say. Not that it's easy. I don't think I've heard this one. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, these precise words are skipping uh, uh, at this moment, but yeah, not, not an easy one. Faint-hearted, yes, not the vocation for faint-hearted. Right. <laughs> Great. Um, Corin, would you like to lead us in prayer as we finish then? Thanks very much.